All right, before I read our text, which is just the first two verses of John chapter 17, I'll give you a little sort of orientation of where we are. So we've just finished um, what's known as the farewell discourse of Jesus, chapters 14, 15, and 16. That's, this is Jesus' most in-depth teaching with his disciples, and he's been talking to them about his, the Holy Spirit who is to come. He's been talking to them about the suffering that they can expect in the world, the hatred, the opposition, the persecution, but also the great things that are in store for them as God's people after he goes to the cross, is raised, and goes back to heaven. Now he's about to pray. So this, this is what's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's finished teaching. There will be no more public teaching for Jesus. He's, he's all done talking to the crowds. He's, he's even done teaching his disciples. So with the end of the farewell discourse, that wraps up his teaching ministry. So there's no more teaching to be done. There's no more miracles for him to perform except for one. There's no more healing. There's no more walking through the, down the long roads of Judea and Galilee with his men. There's only one thing left for Jesus now, and it's the cross. But first, he prays, and this is his prayer Chapter 17. Now we have the so-called Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. But I really think that that prayer ought to be called the model prayer. Because what we see here is that this is really the Lord's Prayer. So in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. It's very brief. And it's, it's a model. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And then he says the familiar our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the model prayer of Jesus because he's teaching us how to pray. It's also not entirely accurate, scholars have agreed, to call this the high priestly prayer, which is if you have a Bible with, with division headings, it's probably going to say the high priestly prayer there. It's not quite accurate to call it that, except that it is Jesus, this is Jesus praying over his people like a, like a good priest would like I, did, I just did for you. Um, this is a priestly prayer in that sense, but the content of the prayer is not just limited to his priesthood. The priesthood, theologically, has to do with his sacrifice and his mediation and his office, what theologians call his office of priesthood. And this prayer doesn't only have to do with that, so it's a little bit confusing. Jesus prays a lot in the Gospels. He's praying all the time in the Gospels but we're rarely given any insight into the content of his prayer time with the Father. Have you ever noticed that? We usually only get brief little snippets, just parts of a sentence or one sentence at the most as he's sort of reacting to something that's happening in the moment and he says, and he says a quick prayer. But when he goes off to the mountain to pray by himself, we're hardly ever told what he's praying about. It's closed to us. He usually prayed alone if it was more than a few words. But here, he goes to his father. And this is his, this is, this is momentous. He's about to die. He's about to die. And he prays and we're given that insight into his prayer. So I want to take our time. And it's going to take a few weeks to get through this, this prayer because we're going to take our time and go slowly and look at everything that's on Jesus's heart. And what I want to do as we go is, is, is look at his 
prayer, these 26 verses that are so precious to us. And then I want to apply it to our prayers and see what we can learn. So let's go ahead and read John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the farewell discourse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So this is the very first thing that is, that is in Jesus' heart. Again, I, I do believe that this is the prayer that truly should be known as the Lord's Prayer because this one reveals what's in the heart of the Savior when he goes to the cross. So first he prays for himself, and that's what we're looking at this morning. Then later, starting in verse 6, he prays for his people, and that includes us, as we'll see. So let's, and after this, by the way, just so you know where we're going, John chapter 18, that's his arrest and trial. John chapter 19, that's his crucifixion and burial. Chapter 20 is his resurrection. And then last chapter of John, John chapter 21, that's his sort of last moments with the disciples. And we will get there early next year and wrap up the book of John. Okay, so this breaks down into three parts. The request, the reason, and the rationale. That is the request. What does Jesus mean by asking for glory? Because he says, Father, glorify your son. And then the reason, why does Jesus want this glory? And finally, the rationale, that is, how is Jesus going to use this glory if God gives it to him? So first, what does Jesus mean by asking for glory? Does this strike anyone as sort of a strange request? Have any of you ever prayed for glory? Have you done that? Maybe you have and you didn't know it. Yeah, maybe you have and you didn't know it. But Jesus is straight on the nose. Father, glorify your son. He's asking to be glorified. And it is a little bit of a strange request and it should feel that way. It's a little bit strange. I mean, in Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus himself said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Remember that? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So he has taught not to seek that kind of glory. And yet here he is praying for glory. So what does he mean? What is he really asking for? I think it's pretty clear. He doesn't, uh, in the book, in the Gospel of John, um, John does not use the word crucified until chapter 19, the narrative of Jesus's crucifixion. The word crucifixion or crucified doesn't appear in the first 18 chapters of John. What this means is that in John, every time Jesus is talking about his crucifixion or John is talking about Jesus's crucifixion, he calls it his lifting up. You ever notice that, 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 that verbiage in the gospel of John? He talks about being lifted up. In uh, chapter three, verse 14, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He's talking about his crucifixion. In chapter 8, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And in chapter 12, he says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth on the cross, will draw all people to myself. And there's two occasions before this one right here 
where Jesus refers to the cross as the hour of his glorification. There's one in chapter 12 when he's talking about the Greeks. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then there's one in the, in the upper room in chapter 13. It says as soon as Jesus, Judas had gone out, he, he went out to betray Jesus. You remember that? It says as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. And in every case here, Jesus is talking about his lifting up or his glory. He's talking about dying on the cross. So the first thing we have to get clear is that Jesus isn't praying for fame. Satan had offered him that when he tempted him. Remember? Satan offered him the world. He said, the whole world could be yours if you just worship me. Jesus said, I don't want it. That's not what I'm here for. So he's never been seen. And, and also, think about all the times when, when the crowds wanted to make him king. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. What did he do? He would always disappear. He's not looking for fame. That's not what this is about. Jesus is praying for something else. He's praying for God to lift him up on the cross. That's what he's asking. But this raises another problem because there was nothing glorious about the cross. To a first century person, this was, this was a violent and ugly and humiliating death. This is how they put, this is how they executed slaves and rebels on the cross. It was a form of humiliation. In addition to the physical torture that it was, there was a psychological element of being put on display like that in your suffering, high up in the air where everyone could see you. This was a terrible death. There's nothing about it that to a Jewish person would have said glory. So it was un unusual to them as it, as it is to us. But I think uh, one of the things that will help us is if we realize what ancient people thought about glory what people in that time considered to be glory and what they thought about death and the connection between the two. And then I think we can see what Jesus is really asking for. So I want to give you sort of the difference between modern, the modern perspective of death and the sort of the ancient perspective of death. We'll call it um, Woody Allen versus Achilles. Two ends of the spectrum. I just, I just ran across, across this quote from Woody Allen. I don't know where this com comes from. Um, but he said, I don't want to achieve immor immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. Um, <laughs> said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> so that's sort of the modern feeling of death is that survival is the highest good. It's just the perpetuation of life that we're after. And we think of that as, as our sort of our immortality and we avoid, we avoid thinking about death in the modern world, don't we? We really do. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, you have Homer's Iliad, which is really the story of Achilles. How many of you have read at least part of the Iliad? Have you seen the movie Troy? Yeah, so there are, this is the story of Achilles, it really is. It's, uh, he's in the first line, and he's all the way through to the end. Um, this is a, it's a poem the Iliad is a poem about glory, about warfare, and about death, but mostly about glory. And Achilles, in the poem, in the story, he gets into this dilemma right from the very beginning. His mother comes to him and tells him, son, you're going to have a choice. You can abstain from battle and go on living and live a long and happy life with a good wife and children who love you. 
or you could fight and die young um, with what Homer calls eternal glory. So he says you can avoid the fight and you can go home and live a good life. Or you could go into battle, but, you, but just know that you're going to die. But if you take that road, they will always be talking about you. And that's what he chooses to do. And whether or not this was a real person, here we are 2,800 years later, and we're still talking about Achilles and his glory. Okay, So that's what, this is sort of the, the, the thinking of the ancient world about death and glory. And we're more like Woody Allen. I'd like to live on in my apartment. But the ancients had a better grasp, a better grasp of what glory meant than we do. They did. It meant more to them than it does now. And they thought that there was nothing more glorious than a warrior or a hero giving his life in the heat of battle. And this wasn't just, the, this wasn't just Greek mythology. Have you ever heard of Valhalla? That's a Viking he- warrior heaven. If you die in battle, you go to Valhalla. This was just, the, the, the thinking was steeped with this idea of a glorious death, a heroic death. So in other words, why I'm telling you this is that the Iliad is, it's really the song of the eternal glory of Achilles. That's what we're talking about, the eternal glory of Achilles. That phrase, eternal glory, is very significant in that story. And it was because he died a glorious and violent death on the battlefield. He achieved what he really wanted which was um, the undying fame of a hero who, who died a good death. Now come back to Jesus with me. He's, not, he's not, nothing like Achilles, and thank goodness. Achilles was a, a monster in that story. When we come back to Jesus, now we see what I think is really happening here, which is that Jesus is asking his father for heroic death. For heroic death. Jesus is asking the father for the best death that any man ever gave. So such a good death, such a heroic death that it would be his eternal glory for the story of this day to be remembered and retold forever. That's what he's asking for when he asks God for glory. Now, when you go back to the Old Testament, because this, is not just, this was not just in the air of the sort of the pagan mythology of the time, there's a hero in the Old Testament. There's lots of heroes in the Old Testament. There's one, the one who comes the closest to sort of being a, a superhero is in the book of Judges. Anyone know who I'm thinking about? Samson. Yeah, Samson. Samson. He, was a, uh, he lived a very imperfect life. I can relate to his many failures, but he was very strong, supernaturally strong, and he was very good at killing. And he lived in a time when there was lots of killing to be done. Israel did need this this hero to fight for them. And there was no one better at it than Samson. But he made a fatal mistake at the end of his life and he gave away the secret to his power. He trusted his own strength is what happened rather than the power of God. And as a result, he was made weak and blind and captive to the Philistines, his, his enemies. Now there comes a really interesting moment <clears throat> when he prays. In his weakness, he prays, Father, Give me back my strength so that I can go out um, the way that I've lived by, by killing my enemies, by, by striking at the heart of the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And it says in Judges 16.30, so Samson prays for heroic death, he does. And it says in Judges 16.30 that, that he killed many more when he died 
than when he lived. It says that. And I find that a really, really interesting statement about his death and what a heroic death really means because Samson was a killer to whom God granted a heroic death and that meant killing more, many more in his death than in his life. Jesus is a healer to whom God granted a heroic death and that meant healing many more in his death than he ever healed in his life. Do you see that? He went around healing for three years and how many people did he heal? Hundreds, maybe thousands. And then he died on the cross and how many has he healed since then? Millions, millions. This is the heroic death that Jesus is asking for. This is the glory that he is asking the Father for. So in the simplest terms, what does Jesus mean? by saying, Father, glorify your son. Jesus knows the plan. He's aware of what he's doing. He's not, he's not going to the cross like sort of a, an unknowing victim. He's willingly walking into the cross, knowing what it was going to cost him, what it was going to feel like, but also knowing why he was doing it. He knew the plan and Right here, he's asking God to orchestrate the events of the next 24 hours because this this time, the next day, he'll be dead in a tomb. He's asking God to orchestrate the events of the next 24 hours so that what happens will be a story that will always speak to our hearts at the deepest level. That's the kind of glory he's asking God for. So that every time this story is retold, it will actually change people. We will hear it and we'll recognize the beauty in it. What's really interesting, the scholar Don Carson, who's a really great commentator on the book of John, he said that this request is essentially the same thing as saying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is a line from the model prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6. And when we think about, when we think about that, when we think about that aspect of this request, he says, glorify your son, Did God do it? Did God answer this prayer? Yes, absolutely. In the most brilliant and the most mind-blowing and eternal way, he answered this prayer of Jesus. He gave him the glory that he was looking for and it cost him everything. And what Jesus did on the cross, it took the work of his three-year ministry in Galilee and Judea and extended it through time and space such that anyone from any corner of the planet in any time and under any circumstances could believe in him and receive the same kind of care and love and healing that those people had when he was in the flesh. Do you see how significant it was that Jesus is asking for this? He's asking for the ball game right here, the whole thing. So that's his request. Now let's move on to the reason, the reasoning behind his request. And we see his motive, actually, in the very next words that come in verse one. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. See, Jesus is telling us why he wants to be glorified. He's not asking simply to be glorified for his own sake, as we said before. He's not asking for fame. 
He could have had that at any time and he rejected it. He's not asking for that. He wants something else. He wants the kind of glory that he can use in the world to exalt his father. Now, what does that mean? I want you to think first about the world that was given to Jesus. When he came into this world, what did he find when he arrived? What did he find when he came to us? It's a world that was corrupted by sin. He made this world and he made it the way he wanted it. And we ruined it through our sin. And he found a world that was corrupted by sin. Full of hopeless sinners, people without any hope at all. There was death and brokenness everywhere he turned. We, we looked at this a, a few months ago, that verse in the story of Lazarus where he, Jesus looked around and Lazarus, his friend, is dead in the tomb and there's just people weeping all over the place and it just says Jesus wept because the world made him sad when he came and he saw what it was. There was death and brokenness There's leprosy. People were possessed by demons. It was ugly. And in a lot of ways, it still is ugly. That was only in just one small corner of the Roman Empire. And that's what Jesus found. But here he is. He's proposing to take this world, this broken world, and bring glory out of it for his father. Think about that. He's saying, if you glorify me, I will take that glory and I will glorify you. That's what Jesus is saying. Think about, there are, there are only a handful of, of ways that Jesus glorified the Father in his death that we have time to look at, but there are, there are, just, there are hundreds of different ways to look at this. The glory that Jesus won for the Father. Let me just give you a, a few though. First of all, think about all the promises that God had made. God had been making promises ever since the fall. The first thing he did after the fall was he turned to the serpent and he cursed the serpent. You remember what he said? He said, said, I'll put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or he shall crush your head, some translations say. God's been making promises all along. And one of the things that Jesus wants to do is he wants, to, he wants the Father to receive the glory of having saved his people like he said he would, of being seen for the promise-keeping God that he is, of being found faithful to his word in the end. He also wants the glory of being the one to prove once and for all that his Father is a God of mercy and justice and love. He's gonna show the world that God is good. He's going to prove it. That's what he's saying. So here are five other ways that the son glorified the father in his crucifixion. And these are in your notes. Number one, he, he proves on the cross, like we said, that the father is faithful to his promises. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, it says, for all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. He proves that God is faithful. God had made 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 years worth of promises. He'd been 
making so many promises, starting with Abraham. And every step of the way, he made promises. He made promises to David. He made promises to, through the prophets to his people. Constantly, he was making promises all along, pointing to what Jesus is about to do. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, all of those promises are going to be fulfilled. And he's going to prove that, that God is faithful to his promises. Number two, on the cross, Jesus brings the mercy of the Father near to sinners. Without the cross, we, God would still be merciful, but we would never know it. You ever thought about that? In Titus 3, verses 4 through 6, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God is merciful, and people are going to see that. Number three, on the cross, Jesus reveals God to be, the, to be just, punishing sin, even while he rescues sinners. This is really important. This is a really important point of what he did. In Romans 3, verse 26, it says, this was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God is just. He doesn't just dismiss or excuse sin. If somebody has sinned against you, they will be held accountable. God is just. He's a God of justice. So how can sinners, how can sinners be saved? Only this way, only through the cross, by faith in Jesus who died to take that penalty. God is still just even while he's merciful. Number four, on the cross, Jesus reveals the, the love that God the Father has for his people. In 1 John 4, verse 10, it says that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we see his love poured out in the cross. And then number five, Jesus carries out the Father's plan, the Father's redemptive plan, what he's been planning to do all along. I read you Genesis 3.15. That's the first gospel. It's the first gospel in the Bible. Jesus says that the, the Eve's son, a son of Eve is going to crush your head. And that's Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8, it says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't understand God's plan because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Jesus carries out this plan, which is really a conspiracy of grace that defeats evil and restores creation without destroying sinners. So when we look at the reason, Jesus' motive for asking the Father for glory, I want to read you a quote from John Calvin. He said in the cross of Christ, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. If it be objected that nothing could be less glorious than Christ's death, I reply that in that death we see a boundless glory which is concealed from the ungodly. In other words, the gospel communicates a particular type of glory that is hidden from those who don't believe in Jesus. 
but is the most beautiful thing in life to those who do. That's the glory of the cross. You can't see it until you believe. And after you believe, there's nothing else to see. That's it. So even this morning, this is what this means. Because Jesus succeeded, because God the Father glorified him on the cross so that Jesus could glorify the Father by showing what a good God he is. What that means is that even this morning, you and I are participating. We're participating in the glory that Jesus said he was going to win for the Father by being here, by worshiping, by praying, by opening his word together. We're participating in that glory. And that brings us to our third point. What is Jesus gonna do with this glory if he gets it? He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So how is Jesus gonna use this glory? Well, this is the full picture of these two verses. Let me put it, let me break it down as simply as I can. And this is in your notes. Jesus asks for glory. That's number one. Because, number two, he wants the Father to be glorified through, number three, the redemption of sinners to eternal life. In other words, Jesus can do this. He's saying, you've given me authority. This is who I am. I have authority over all flesh. Sounds just like the Great Commission, doesn't it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Same thing. This is who I am, and I can do this thing. I can do it because of who I am. I can succeed in this mission that you've given me because of who I am. You've given me this authority. And because Jesus has that authority over everyone who has ever lived and whoever will live in the future, he can glorify the Father by granting eternal life. He brings eternal life into the world and he gives it to sinners and that glorifies the Father. And we're gonna look at the theme of eternal life in more depth next week. But I just wanna wrap this section up by saying that everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus did was for this single purpose, this single goal, the glory of God. He starts his prayer with this because he has never stopped thinking about it because it has always been on his mind his entire life. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. This is the theme of his life. It's, it's everything that he ever did had to do with this. And so this is where the glory of God meets our everyday lives. And that's really important because sometimes we think of God's glory and it's something we like, we admire it. He's got that glory, it's up there in heaven. Yeah, he's glorious. We sing about it to God be the glory. But where does that glory come and cross with our path? Where does that come into our life? We can start with this one fact that when Jesus says, I propose to glorify the Father by bringing eternal life and giving it to sinners. What that means is that your eternal life and my eternal life 
the eternal life that, that if you have believed in Jesus, you are already living the eternal life and it won't stop when you die. It'll just keep going. That eternal life is not an end in itself. And that's important. That's, that's very important, okay? Because if we make the eternal life that, that we get from Jesus about, if it just ends with us, then we're, we're taking a gift that, that God has given and we're turning it inwards and we're making it about ourselves. And that's a self-centered way to be in a relationship with God. Our eternal life does, it's, it's, beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. It's the ultimate gift. It's the ultimate comfort, but it's not an end in itself. Your salvation is not only not even primarily for your own enjoyment. It's ultimately for the glory of God. And that should excite you. That should sound great to you. Here's why. Did anyone know the first line in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? You know it? I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say the question, and if you know the answer, say it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins. It begins with the same topic as Jesus' prayer. That's no coincidence. Here's the idea. In our, in our natural, in our sinful state, unredeemed, without eternal life, we don't bring any glory to God. How can we? We don't. We don't have the life to offer if you haven't received the eternal life that only Jesus can give, you're not, you are not fulfilling your purpose as a human being. You're living for your own pleasure, for your own status, for your own gratification. But as soon as you receive this life from Jesus, as soon as you're living this life, something changes. You're immediately a living testimony to the goodness and the mercy of God because you've been loved, you've been changed, you've been given life by the Father. And this isn't something that you have to try to do. It's not an attempt that we make. It's, it's a fact. Just by nature of having trusted in Jesus and receiving God's love, your life is now contributing to the eternal glory of God. Does that mean something to you? That should mean everything. It is everything. Because that's not, the eternal life isn't just your life. It's the life of Jesus in you. And that life cannot fail to glorify God. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, there's a famous verse. We all, we all know it more or less by heart. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? To the glory of God. In other words, whatever you find yourself doing, wherever you are at this moment, remember that your, your life is a trophy of God's grace. Jesus was lifted up to glorify the Father by finishing the mission to bring eternal life to sinners. And that's your second point there in your sermon notes. Jesus was lifted up to glorify the Father by finishing the mission to bring eternal life to sinners. So I want to end by bringing this all the way home to our prayers. How should we pray about glory? 
Should we pray about glory? Should we? Yeah. How do we pray for... Do we, do we say with Jesus, glorify me? Do we, well, let's just stop there. Is that a prayer that we would ever pray? Glorify me? Let's think about it. We're not asking God to glorify us, are we? I think that's a yes, yes and no. I think that's a yes and no question. We don't pray for the kind of glory that Jesus has. We don't pray like that because that glory belongs to him alone. But there are at least two senses in which I believe we're not only welcome to pray for glory, but we should, re- we should regularly be praying for it. At least two senses. Because they're, because they're biblical. Because they're consistent with what God says he's, al- he's already said he wants to give us. And the first sense is this. It, it's for, we should pray for the glory of being made in Christ's image of being more and more like him. Have you ever thought about that as glory? And listen, the closest thing that we have in our culture to the idea of glory is fame. Have you ever noticed how miserable famous people seem to be? But the glory of being like Jesus is what makes life worth living. And God has said that someday, someday, you won't even, you won't, you will have to think really hard to remember what it was like to live in a sinful world. Someday, there won't be any sin in you. Sin is the thing that makes you miserable. Is anyone confused about that? Sin is what makes your life miserable. Yours and other people's. That's it. And that will be gone, and that is glory. Amen. You don't think we should pray for that? Pray for that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 and 18, it says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And Paul doesn't hesitate to tell us that we're going to inherit glory. He never pulls that punch. He never stops and says, maybe I shouldn't say this because it won't be good for him. No, he, he dives into it and he says, glory, you're bound for glory, people. Remember that. We have to remember it, he says. But that is the glory of being like Jesus. And that is the glory that if you believe in Jesus, it's already happening in your life. The other point here from that, from that quote that Paul said is it's this light momentary affliction. He calls it light momentary affliction. This was a man who was beaten and, and almost to death and stoned. I mean, there's a, I think it's in Philippians, there's this litany of things that happened to him. And none of us have gone through anything like that. He was hated, he was reviled. He was falsely accused. He was dragged through the streets. I mean, this man was, he lived a miserable life and he goes, this is a light momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that God says is bound for us. So meditating on that future, meditating on that promise, 
brings us strength in the middle of our troubles. It puts things in perspective. I can just give you one brief instance of this. It happened to me this week. This might be the reason this happened to me this week. My truck broke down on Thursday. And you say, Pastor Tom, but your truck is in the parking lot. I'm looking at it right now. That's, it's in the parking lot because that's where I dumped it off of the trailer. And it'll be up here so that you won't know if I'm here working or not. Until it's fixed. Broke down on Thursday. And I do not like working on cars. Um, I can do it, more or less, but I don't like it. And so I'm, I'm out here in, the, in one of the worst parts of Escondido because it was right by a, because I had it towed to an auto parts store. And I'm replacing a, a coolant hose, which, of course, the thing you, always, the thing you need to replace is never like right there, right? It's like, oh, it's right on top. I thought that's easy. It's always somewhere where you can't see the fastener, and it's like my hand doesn't fit there anyways. So I'm elbows deep in the engine compartment of my truck, not having any luck. And I had the thought, someday there aren't going to be any more broken down cars. No, I'm serious though. Now it's funny. It's funny even to me to tell that story. In the moment, it wasn't funny. In the moment, I was bleeding from about five places on my hands because I'm such a bad mechanic. (laughs) And my whole day was shot. And everything I was planning on doing, including preparing for this sermon, was out the window because I spent three hours making a repair that was unsuccessful and then ended up towing my car back anyways. That's how that day went. It was miserable in the moment. And what happened, I'm trying to tell you what happened is I'm bent over inside of my truck and just a little moment of glory broke in. Just a little moment. And it said that, I don't know if it's God speaking to me or it probably was him bringing it to mind, but it's like there, there will be no more frustrations someday. There won't be any more broken things. And even in that silly moment, that glory broke in in an otherwise miserable day and it carried me through like a fresh breeze. And when we consider the kind of glory that God has prepared for us, not not just perfected living conditions, people, not just pleasantness, but the kind of persons he said we're going to become, the kind of beings that we will be, free of sin, free of weakness, free of limitation. Doesn't that put life in perspective here and now? So yes, I say to you, you should pray for glory. You should always be thinking about it. The more you think about it, the more real it will be to you. Number two, more importantly, We should pray for glory in the sense of ability to glorify God in this world. We should ask God for the ability to glorify him. This is the heart of Jesus's prayer that we're looking at this morning. He's asking God to make it possible for him to do something 
that would bring real and meaningful and lasting glory to his father. Father, make it possible. Make it work. Do it. That's what he's asking. And we should ask for the same ability. And I think this requires two things, really. Seeing the opportunities for God's, for God's glory. That's the awareness. And seizing the opportunities. And that's the courage or the ability or the boldness. Jesus was always talking. He was always talking about his hour. Have you noticed that? The hour is coming. The hour is almost here. And now he says, Father, the hour has come. The hour is an opportunity to glorify God. That's what Jesus thought of it. Can we say the same? Can we say that we're alert to the hour when God might put us on the spot and give us an opportunity to do something that glorifies him? This should be one of the, the great and enduring prayers of every believer that God would give us the awareness and the courage and the ability to glorify him when the, when the opportunity comes. But here is, here is the ultimate step, and I want to read from, to you from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says that there's a way for us to share the sufferings of Jesus. And this is that way. When suffering comes, when that hour overtakes you, you turn to the Father and you say, God, Glorify yourself in this. That is all that matters to me. Just like Jesus, glorify yourself. That's all I care about. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And if we show that kind of heart orientation in our suffering, Paul says that we become partakers of that suffering and that we will rejoice when his glory is revealed because that is the glory that we will also partake of if we partake in his suffering. The only way to do that, by the way, the only way to do that, to rejoice in suffering, is to believe that God has given you eternal life through the suffering of Jesus. There's no other way. You can't try hard to be happy when suffering comes. It only comes through being delighted in the gospel. That's the only way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and I'm going to try to demonstrate to you, don't just listen, pray this prayer with me, but I'm going to try to demonstrate how we might pray for glory, pray for the glory of glorifying God. So let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll sing a hymn. Father, we ask that you would make it possible for us to glorify you. We want you to open the door and give us the strength and the courage and the faith to seize the opportunity. We ask you to remove the fear that we have of people thinking we're fools and cowards 
for following Christianity and instead teach us to fear you. Teach us to fear for the people around us who are careless with their souls. Teach us to fear that this world is not seeing your glory. Let that be the deep concern of our hearts. Not just what people think about us, but what they think of you. Just as Jesus was able to turn to you in the hour of his crisis and say, let this glorify you, Father, we want to be people whose hearts love your glory. And it is our glory to glorify you. So let us be people who are always looking for that moment, that hour when your light is going to break into our darkness and turn misery into strength and turn ugliness into beauty and turn death inside out and show the world who you really are. We ask these things in the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.